John chapter 7. I'm going to start here tonight a series of messages or studies on the seven I am sayings of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, there is what is known as the seven I am sayings or statements of Jesus. And tonight we will not start on one of those seven. Tonight will be an introductory study to, to that. I just want for the next several Wednesdays, it may be a little different. I'm sitting down on purpose. I want this to be more of a study context, a more intimate setting. And I really want us to dig into God's Word and learn what it says and apply it to our lives in the context of, of the community of believers here that we're with. And so um, if, if you want to have any comment after this study, I want to encourage you to add a comment. And we'll, if you have a prayer request, we're going to pray together. And so I just, I just want to, uh, the Lord laid that upon my heart. And that's what we're going to do for the next, really, eight weeks on Wednesday. So um, how many of you are familiar with the seven I am statements in John? Um, they speak wonderfully as to who Jesus proclaimed himself to be. Before we read, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the individuals that are here today. I thank you for those who are watching on Facebook, online. I pray that you would bless them in their homes, that you'd be a special comfort and encouragement to them, God, maybe those who feel lonely right now, that they would sense your presence in their life, that they would be encouraged by this word, that they would be encouraged that they know that there's people that love them, a part of their church family, that you'd be with us here tonight. Help us to know who you are, Jesus, who you proclaim yourself to be, and let that impact the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we walk in our life, and that you may be proclaimed through our lives as to your deity, as to your lordship, as to your love for people, that you have laid your life down. Let that be a message that's preached through us. Help us to be encouraged by the study here today to know and have a greater intimacy with your nature and your person. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What do Americans believe about Jesus? If you were to ask and take a poll, what do you think about Jesus? Well, the Barna Group, who has many wonderful polls that they do over, they've done over the course of many years, the Barna Group in, in the year 2015, they put out a poll and were asking specific questions regarding the person of Jesus Christ. And, and there are three particular findings I wanted to make noted to you, which relates to this series, this study. Number one is that in this 2015 poll is that the vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. 92% of Americans believe Jesus was a real historical person. Now, not just the Bible, but also other historical ancient texts, uh, historians such as Josephus and other sources clearly indicate that Jesus was a real person who walked on this earth, who lived about 2,000 years ago in the region of Judea and Israel, and that he lived as a real Jewish man, an historical person. Just as real as George Washington and Abraham Lincoln was, 92% of people believe that Jesus was a real person. That's encouraging. That's good. Okay? That's good. But then it kind of digresses or regresses uh, from there a little bit as we start to look at the person of Jesus Christ. Number two, one alarming finding is that younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe that Jesus was God. 56% of adults believe Jesus was God. 25% of adults say he was only a religious or spiritual leader on par with what maybe Buddhists would say or uh, Islam would say about Jesus. But 48% of millennials, that is those who were born between the years 1981 and 1996, they believe Jesus was not God. Or they believe Jesus was God. So 52% of millennials believe Jesus was not God. So overwhelmingly, millennials, the younger generation that's rising up in this country, are becoming less and less uh, Bible-centric or Judeo-Christian value-centric as opposed to their parents or their grandparents who were saturated in a Judeo-Christian American worldview. We are quickly departing from that view. And, and the biggest emphasis is on what did they think of Jesus Christ? That's the central figure to the Word of God, to our salvation, to the Christian faith. What do they think about, about Jesus Christ? And 52% of millennials believe Jesus was not God. 56% of adults believe that Jesus was God. And number three, Americans are divided 
on whether Jesus was sinless. Now, this is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith, that Jesus was God and that Jesus was sinless. It was absolutely foundational. 52% of all Americans believe Jesus sinned like other people. 50, okay, the same 92% of people who believe Jesus walked the earth, he was a real person, 52% of those, 92% believe Jesus sinned just like you and me, that he was a, a common person. And even more concerning, when you go to the population of millennials, those who were born between 81 and 96, 56% of them are more likely to believe Jesus committed sin. All of humanity has had an opinion on this most influential and polarizing figure in human history, which is Jesus Christ. There's been all kinds of opinions concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And I want, by the, going into this study, really beginning next week, introductory message being today, I want us to view as to what did Jesus say about himself? If Jesus was a real person, we know he walked the earth, 92% of Americans believe that. You have that on your side when you go and minister to people. They won't deny that Jesus was a made-up person made up by Christians. But what it comes down to is, is what he said true? The claims that he made? The claims that the Bible says regarding him? The ways that it quotes him in the Gospels? Is that true and valid? And it's most important that we understand what did Jesus declare concerning himself? Because many people say... Jesus was not God because Jesus never explicitly said that he was God. And I will prove that once and for all today that Jesus did proclaim, him, proclaim himself God. And that will be the springboard for the remaining seven weeks as to why, God, why Jesus is when he says, I am the bread of life in John 6, or I am the light of the world, or I am the door for the sheep. Or I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. Those are only significant if that is God saying that. And we're going to just lay out here today as to why we know, we believe, and we stand upon the truth that Jesus is divine. He is deity. And he does deserve the lordship in our lives. So this will be an introductory study to the seven I am statements of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of John. Before we do read John, and we're going to get there in a bit, but John chapter 7 is where we're going to start and eventually land on John chapter 8. But just to give you kind of a, a, a good overview, a bird's eye view of the Gospel of John. It's written by John, even though by name he does not identify himself, but history tells us an ancient uh, Writers tell us that it was the apostle, the, one of the original 12 disciples, John, one of the inner three, uh, aside from James and Peter, who wrote this gospel. He wrote this gospel between uh, A.D. 80 and 95. That's about when he wrote it. So nearly 50, 30 to 50 years after the ascension of Jesus in 33 A.D., he writes this gospel. He writes this gospel. And the necessity that he wrote this gospel, or the occasion for which he wrote this gospel, according to several ancient sources, is that the elderly John, who was currently living in Ephesus, by the way, he also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he wrote the book of Revelation. Um, when, uh, when he was living in Ephesus, there were church leaders in Asia that asked him to write this spiritual gospel in order to refute a current false a doctrine and dangerous teaching that was questioning the nature and person of Jesus Christ. There were those who were following after a very persuasive Jew, Jew named Serenthus, who was denying Jesus' deity. And that was one that was one instance for the occasion that Jesus or that John wrote his gospel concerning Jesus. And the purpose for him writing it is further found. In John 20, 31, the very last verse of the book of John, what does John say? He says, there are many other miracles and things that I could tell, tell you about that I suppose would fill up all the books that there are in the world. But I have written these things. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's my purpose for writing this. I want you to understand who Jesus is and ultimately that you would believe in him as the Messiah of the Jews, as the Savior of not just the Jews, but of the, all the world, including the Gentiles, that he is the Son of God, and that in believing in him, you may have eternal life. When we come to the person of Jesus, that is God's, God's purpose. When we come to the person of Jesus Christ, it is salvation to all men. Not just to learn of him, but to be transformed by him. Lastly, there's a few features for the Gospel of John that are unlike what we know as the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels because they are so uh, uh, similar in the way that they are written. Many of the verses and the stories and parables that they share, they share in common. Some of the verses are word for word uh, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is very, very unique among the four Gospels, unlike the synoptic Gospels. John, he uniquely concentrates... Per this series, he uniquely concentrates on the deity of Jesus Christ, which is why you see Son of God used continuously throughout the book of John, which is why you see the prologue to John chapter 1. That is, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, which is called and known as the prologue, in the beginning was the Word. John is trying to immediately allude to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was God. John is immediately trying to make the audience understand Jesus, the Word. God which became flesh when dwelt among us. He was with God. He was with God. He was God. And by and through Him were all the worlds made. He is the divine Logos. That came and dwelt among us. The word. The word believe occurs 98 times in the original Greek text. Eternal life is a key topic. What is unique to John is that there are a multitude of personal encounters that are presented throughout the Gospel of John. You can think of John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, and other places where there are these intimate personal encounters between Jesus and and the one, because he loves the one. And lastly, what is unique to John is that the number seven is a unique number in the Gospel of John. There are seven primary signs or miracles. John, he, 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 um, he intentionally picks out only a, seven particular signs or miracles that he chooses to talk about in the Gospels. Only seven, when there was many others. But he uniquely, he, he chooses seven signs or miracles. There are seven primary discourses or message topics in the book of John. And then there are the seven I am sayings, which we will get to next week. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection in life. I am the way, the truth, and life, and so forth. And so that is, that is kind of a bird's eye view of the Gospel of John. Now we turn to John chapter 7. When we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, the moment that he declared, when he went to his hometown, he went to his synagogue, and he opened up the scroll in Isaiah, and he read the place where it says, the Lord has anointed me to, and he lays out the various things that identify the Messiah, and it says that he closed the book and he sat down, and everyone was amazed by what he had said. And it was shortly thereafter, and, he, and then he said, he said, in your presence this has been fulfilled. Meaning, I am the fulfillment of this Messianic text. The Lord has anointed me to be the Messiah. And it was shortly thereafter, that very day, that his own town folk want to stone him and push him off a cliff. The moment he presented himself as the Messiah, Jesus caused a stir. And everywhere he went, no matter how big the village, how small the village was, or whether if he was in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the religious center of Judaism, he always caused a stir. There were always questions concerning this person. This could this be the Messiah? Is this Elijah reincarnate? Who is this man? Who is he? Everywhere he went, he would heal people, even on catch this 
the Sabbath. There was even controversy and stir, even when he would heal a cripple on the Sabbath. He did all kinds of miracles everywhere he went. He spoke with authority, unlike all the other Jewish leaders of their day. And get this, most scandalous of all, he ate with sinners. Jesus could do nothing right to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and to the poor people of, the wor- of, of that world, to the people who were searching and looking, who were broken. He was finally the answer. He was finally to them. He was the Messiah. And so after some time, inevitably, inevitably, the question would be posed, who is this man? Could he be the one? That is, is he the Messiah? We know the scriptures, Old Testament, forwards and backwards. We know what's going to denote the nature and character of the Messiah. But, he, but the Messiah is said to come from Bethlehem, and Jesus comes from Nazareth, but little did they know that he actually was born in Bethlehem, and he grew up in Nazareth. And he is the, of the seed of David, of the tribe of Judah. And even John the Baptist, he had to know for himself. When he was imprisoned by Herod, he sent his disciples to Jesus. And here's what uh, John the Baptist's disciples asked of Jesus. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Please let us know. We have to know. Who are you? Jesus answered and said to them, here's my answer. I love this. He doesn't just answer with a yes or no. He answers with his works and his actions. He says, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That last sentence is very key to all of this. Very much key. But the greatest controversy and scandal is created when Jesus begins to identify himself with God. And he begins to talk as if he's God and do things that can only be attributed to God. And he gets himself in some hot water when the things he's doing, the things he's saying, the things he's referencing, that sounds a lot like something God would say and only God could say. For instance, we're going to read here in John chapter 8 how that he identifies himself with God in Exodus chapter 3. I, before Abraham was, I am. And by the way, that's the title of the message here today. Before Abraham was, I am. He is alluding to his eternal existence when he says that. Only God could say that. He says he will judge the world at the end of time in Matthew 25 where he talks about at the end of the age he will be glorified and sit down on his throne and he will separate the goats from the sheep. And Jesus will do that in the end. Only God can judge the nations and judge people. And then what is I think most telling for us is that Jesus in his earthly ministry, he forgave sins. He forgave sins. Most noted is... Uh, when Jesus is teaching in a house and it's so crowded that there's a crippled man who wants to make his way into the presence of Jesus, but he can't because it's so crowded, the throngs of people, his friends take him to the rooftop of the house, they open up the roof of the house and they let him down so that he can be let down right in the presence of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Your faith, because of your faith that you've exhibited right now, he doesn't heal him first, he says, Your sins are forgiven. He doesn't heal him first. Obviously, he wanted to be healed. He's on his his mat. He's crippled. But he says, your sins are forgiven. Sons, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who Who can forgive sins but God alone? So when somebody says Jesus never claimed to be God, well, only God can forgive sins. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine Wade steals 20 bucks from Weston. I know Wade would never do that. He steals 20 bucks from Weston. Okay? The offense is between Wade and Weston. Only two people. That's it. 
Nobody else is involved. Weston is owed an apology from one person, from Wade. And the only person who can grant that apology is Weston to Wade. But imagine I come along, I step up, and I say, Wade, put my hand on his shoulder. I don't consult with Weston. I don't care what Weston thinks, what he says. I don't care what's been taken from him. I, pa- I put my hand on Wade's shoulder. I say, Wade, you're forgiven for what you did to Weston. Now, that's absurd, isn't it? In human terms and in natural terms. That makes no sense. Unless, unless the person who is saying you're forgiven is the one truly who has, who has reaped the offense. Unless the one who says you're forgiven is the one's, it's their law that's been breached. And it's only in their authority to forgive. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. But what should we make of a man himself, unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for stealing other man's money? Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he was really if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply that I can only regard as a silliness and a conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Only God can forgive sins. And they said because of this, he's blaspheming. He's blaspheming. And ultimately, this is why Jesus was crucified. This is why multiple, multiple times they wanted to grab him. They wanted to push him off a cliff. Why multiple times they picked up stones. And not until his time had come did he give himself over to them. Multiple times they wanted to stone him because they convicted the wickedness of their hearts and because he made himself out to be God. C.S. Lewis, before we read our scripture, C.S. Lewis, he poses this trilemma. The trilemma that comes to the claims of Jesus Christ. This is very important. Very important. Have you ever heard this? Jesus is either lunatic, liar, or Lord. Have you ever heard that before? This is a great, this is a great uh, apologetics tool. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Remember what I quoted regarding to the Barna uh, poll regarding people's view of who they think Jesus is. There are people who say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, Or else he would be the devil of hell. He would be a liar. He would be a charlatan. He would be uh, uh, as the devil who arrays himself in light. You must make your choice. He's not all three at the same time. He's either lunatic, liar, or Lord. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Last sentence. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. You understand what C.S. Lewis is saying there? For all the claims that Jesus made, he's either crazy, he needs to put, be put into the asylum, he's out of his mind, or he's an absolute liar and charlatan and trying to pull the wool over people's eyes and he's a false Christ. Or he is who he said he is. And he cannot be 
both a good moral teacher and not divine. Because the claims that he made, the things that he did, point to his divinity. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And we understand from Scripture, and we'll look at here today, that he is the Lord. John chapter 7, verse 25. I'm just going to skip through a few key verses in, in, in um, John chapter 7 and then hone in on uh, chapter 8, the latter part of chapter 8. Um, now, look at verse 25. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Look at verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him. Remember that word believed. And said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? This man is doing a multitude of signs. Look at verse 32. Then the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer than I will go to, to him who sent me. Go down to verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, during the feast of Passover, Jesus stood, or this is not the feast of Passover, but Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Look at verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. But the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Concentrate on this next verse in 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? You see the stir? You see the question marks? You see the angst and the confusion amongst the people, between the religious leaders, the common people? Everybody's like, Who is he? Is he the Christ? Is he the prophet? Who is this man? We must know. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the, the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Last little bit of Scripture right here in chapter 7, then we go to our primary text. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? Okay, this blasphemous evil man. Why haven't you brought him to us? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Like us really spiritual religious people. We haven't believed in him. Why should you? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They wanted to take him. There was the great division. There's all this angst and confusion and even Nicodemus, it says here, one who went in the very beginning of John, chapter 3, he kind of advocates for Jesus. And he says in 50, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. I want you to know that God will always demolish your preconceived ideas about him and how he'll move and how he'll work and how he'll speak and the people he'll use. And he, he will always burst our perceptions of who he is. God is not like man, and we are not like him. And the same applied to Jesus and when he came onto the scene and who he declared himself to be. So, John chapter 8, verse 48. Okay, this is our primary text. I just wanted to set it up with chapter 7, but 48 through 59. These 11 verses. If you recall, the beginning of John chapter 8, the adulterous woman who was caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. You without sin throw the first stone. They all leave. They're convicted. He does not condemn the woman. He says her sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Um, he continues on, but look, we're going to look here at uh, verse 48. He, he talks about them as Abraham's seed and descendant. 
Then in 48, then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. They're thinking they'll never physically die. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? And there is the greatest question that any could be asked in this life. This is the greatest question that you can ask of yourself and that you can have others ask. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's what it comes down to. Who is Jesus? And who do you make yourself out to be Jesus? Well, he's about to tell them. And this is something we should know for ourselves and be able to proclaim to the world. This is who Jesus is. Who do you think Jesus is? It's the most important question anyone can ask. Just like when Pilate, when Jesus was before him, about to be crucified, Pilate says, what is truth? And truth incarnate is standing right in front of Pilate. Jesus is truth. Who is Jesus? Who do you make yourself out to be? 54, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And, I, and if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Man, this is a scathing rebuke and accusation against these supposed spiritual leaders. 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Meaning in faith, Abraham looked forward to the Messiah, and through Abraham the seed was born, Jesus being the seed. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And here it is right here. Here it is. This is one of the most profound scriptures in all of the Bible. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that's the point of a mic drop right there. Before Abraham was, I am. He's speaking to people who are good Jewish leaders who know the Old Testament forwards and backwards. And they immediately know what Jesus is talking about. And their response says everything. Their response says everything as to what Jesus was declaring concerning himself. Because in verse 59, then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. Jesus was saying, I am God. He is explicitly saying it. Don't ever believe the lie. Well, Jesus never said, I am God. He just said, I am God right there. And I'm going to prove it to you. Go to Exodus chapter 3. Go to Exodus chapter 3. Like I said, we're going to study tonight. Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to try to go quickly here. And quickly... Explain what this means, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And this is the predicate. This is, as I said, this is the springboard for him to, to finish the seven other I am sayings. Okay? This is the... the, the Beginning uh, stages or the, 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 where we start when it comes to Jesus and the other claims that he makes concerning himself. It starts with this one, though this one is not included in the seven I am statements. But 3 and 13, if you recall, Moses, he sees a burning bush. God reveals himself to Moses. Moses doesn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of his ancestors, his fathers. 
and God reveals himself in the burning bush. Moses comes close, takes off his shoes because this is holy ground. And, and I'm sorry, go back to verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have, now this is key right here, I have come down. I'm going to come back to that at the very end. This also relates to Jesus. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now go over with in verse 12. We'll start there, 12 through 15. So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, which is Mount Sinai. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now we're going to see here in a moment, God actually answers in three ways. That's not it. God answers in three ways in three verses. He says, Moses says, Who's, who am I going to tell, tell them who sent me? I can't just say the God of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Especially when I go to a paganistic, polytheistic culture where there's a multitude of gods. How, how, how do I tell them that you are the one true God? And this is how God describes himself. Here's what you're going to say. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. There's a second description of himself. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So in, in, in three instances there, notice that God gives three answers to the question, What shall I tell them what your name is? He says, I am who I am. Then in, in, in 14b, he says, I am has sent me to you. And then in 15, he says, God says, the Lord has sent me to you. This is my name forever. I want to teach you something right here that's very important. Now, all of you, in verse 15, when you look at your translation of the Bible, where it says, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God. Is the word Lord right there in all caps in your Bible? It's in all caps, isn't it? Okay, anytime you see in your Bible, Lord in all caps, that is in the original Hebrew, the name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh, a name which was so holy and sacred to the Jewish people that they would not even speak it. And, and, um, and, and, and uh, scribes would not even write it. They would abbreviate it because they esteemed God's name to be holy. Okay? Now, listen, listen closely. So, two facts indicate that this text provides an interpretation of the name Yahweh when it comes to I am who I am or I am. Okay? Okay. One indication is that the name Yahweh and the name I am in the original Hebrew, they are built out of the same Hebrew word, which is uh, Hayah. H-A-Y-A-H. Yahweh and the Hebrew word for I am have the same root word, which is Hayah. Okay? The other is that Yahweh seems to be used here interchangeably with I am. So when he says, tell them I am who I am, and tell them that I am sent you, sent, uh, is sending you. And then in verse 14, here is what you will tell the people. The Lord, the Lord, God of your fathers has sent me to you. So you see how he's using it interchangeably. Does this make sense? He's using it interchangeably. This is very important. Very important that we understand this. Okay, this is a sacred name for God. This is Yahweh. And this I am who I am can be translated I am who I am or I am what I am or I will be what I will be. As I said, the word uh, ha, um, ha which is here I am, is related to the Hebrew verb meaning to be. 
So when he says, I am, it's a a verb meaning to be. He just is. He just is. Okay, it sounds like an incomplete sentence to say, I am, okay, I am what? No, I just am. And it's, it's, it's tied to the sacred name that I've revealed throughout all of Genesis. Many, many times he has revealed his sacred name as Yahweh. Okay? And this is tied to I am. So when he says, I am who I am, I am, and he says Yahweh, he's saying the God, the true and living God. And when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he's saying, I am Yahweh. I am the God that was revealed from the beginning of time. I'm the true and living God. I am God incarnate. I'm Yahweh incarnate. Before Abraham was, before all things, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with, was with God and the Word was God. Everything was made through the Word because he was there in the beginning. Jesus, the Word incarnate, which became flesh amongst us. So, this word, hayah, is related to the verb meaning to be. It would be used in any number of normal situations. I am watching the sheep. I am walking on the road, or I am his father. However, when used as a standalone description, I am, I am is God's ultimate statement of what his name means. And a few ways to describe this. It means that he is self-existent. For God to say, I am, I am who I am, I am what I am, I will be what I will be, I am, I just am. It means that I am self-existent, that God has no equal, he is the being of beings. God's existence is not contingent upon anyone else. It hurts my brain to think about God's eternal existence. How has he always existed? He has no beginning or end at all. How is that possible? That is crazy. Everything for us has a beginning and end. Everything. All of creation has a beginning and an eventual end. Your life has a beginning and an end, a point in time. And even time itself is an invention, a creation of God. And he lives outside of time. Like, God already exists in the future. Okay, everything is as, already, is as if it's already occurred to God. But we got to wait, okay? He, he lives outside of time and space. He created time and space. He is self-existent. And his existence is not contingent upon anything else. His plans are not contingent upon any circumstances. He promises that he will be what he will be. That is, he will be the eternally constant God. He stands ever-present and unchangeable, completely sufficient in himself to do what he wills to do. He's unlike anything else. It denotes that he is eternal. I love what John Gill says. It denotes his eternity and immutability, that is, his unchangeableness, and his constancy and faithfulness and fulfilling his promises, for it includes all time past, present, and to come. And the sense is not only I am what I am at present, but I am what I have been, and I am what I shall be, and shall be what I am. (laughs) That's the God we serve. And that is my Jesus. Before Abraham was, I am. Now let's bring it home to this incarnate God. It also denotes I'm so thankful for this, his immediate presence. Remember what I said about verse 7 and 8 of chapter 3 in Exodus? I have surely seen the oppression of my people, and I've heard their cry and their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. So I have come down. Yahweh, as self-existent, Eternal, eternal God who's unchangeable, who's faithful, who's constant, who does what he wants because he is the creator and ruler of all things. He interjects himself in time and space, even yet in the Old Testament, and he comes 
down. He reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. He speaks to him. He speaks to Moses. He leads the people because he sees them. He hears them. He knows them. And the same applies to you and I. The eternal, pre-existing, self-sufficient God who is so much greater than you and I, he interjects himself into your life, into my life, supremely through Jesus Christ. Before Abraham was, I am. I want to show you one more thing. Go to Genesis chapter 2. You remember what I said about all caps, Lord, indicates the word being used for Yahweh in the original Hebrew, which is God's personal holy name. Whenever you see throughout the word of God, the word God, okay, capital G-O-D, that Hebrew word is Elohim. But Elohim is a, very, is a generic term for God. So you can even see in Pharaoh's gods, it would be Elohim, but little e and little g. But whenever you see capital G-O-D, it's talking about Yahweh, but it's using the word Elohim as the generalized term for God. The more, not abstract, but the more broad, broad usage of the, the terminology for God, okay? And Yahweh is the more intimate, personal name of God, which is why the Jews don't even want to say that name, Yahweh. In chapters 1 and 2, you will see continuously capital G-O-D, in reference to God, which is Elohim. And then something happens in chapter 3. I'm sorry, in chapter 2. So chapter 1, it's all God. Okay, sorry. Chapter 1, it's all Elohim. Okay, look at verse 29. And God said, 31, then God saw everything that he made. Okay, that's Elohim. Capital E, capital G. Okay, then look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God, Elohim, ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. Verse 3, then God, Elohim, blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, uh, in it he rested. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. Verse 4, that they were created in the day. Now here's this transition. This is the first time. In the day that the what? Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. Okay, why is the word Yahweh for the first time interjected into the name for God? You want to know why? Because man has now been interjected into the picture. Continue on. Before any, look, verse 5, before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain, but a mist went up from the earth. Verse 7, and the Lord God formed man, of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. To say that he is Yahweh and not just Elohim, to say that he, he, to say that I am or I am who I am or to say that I am Yahweh, it's also, this is very important, let me end right here, it is to denote his immediate presence in your life. He is a personal, intimate God who knows you on a first-name basis, and he wants you to know him on a first-name basis. When God said and identified himself as, I am who I am, he stated that no matter when or where, he is there. This is similar in the New Testament expression in Revelations 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is true of him for all time, but it have been especially appropriate for a message in Moses' day to a people in slavery and who could see no way out. I am was promising to free them and they could count on him because he would come down to them. And Jesus supremely, God incarnate, did this very thing. Jesus came down. The prophet Isaiah declares that the Messiah will be Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. God with us. The violent response of the Jews to Jesus saying, I am, indicates they clearly understood what he was declaring, that he was the eternal God incarnate 
And Jesus was equating himself with the I am title God gave himself all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. And Jesus using the same phrase I am in seven declarations about himself, which will continue next week, is all predicated upon this first I am statement concerning himself as the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient God. Let me end right here. I mentioned earlier that the greatest question that can be asked, who is Jesus? Who is he? And that same question was asked of Jesus, who are you? And Jesus clearly displayed in his actions and by his words and his proclamations that he is God. He is God. That he has no beginning or end. He is Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He is Yahweh incarnate. But I believe the second greatest question is this. We must ask ourselves daily, and we must ask this probing question of a world who's dead in their sins. What will you do with Jesus? Not only, not only who is he, you may get that right, but what have you done with Jesus? John said, I have written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that, you, that all who believe in him may have eternal life. That's the purpose. That's the reason. Sadly, even though Moses came in the full authority of Yahweh, the I am Pharaoh rejected. He hardened his heart. And God brought judgment against all the gods of Egypt with the ten plagues. But Pharaoh was competing with the true and living God, wasn't he? Using his sorcerers and defying God and hardening himself and rebelling against God. Pharaoh stood in opposition to the Lord. He wasn't willing to concede to the true Lord's power. He wasn't willing to yield to Yahweh's plan, which was all-powerful and all-sufficient. In essence, Pharaoh, Pharaoh was saying, I am. In essence, Pharaoh was saying, I am God. I am my own God. I will defy your God, who you say is the true living God, and I will be my own God. I will do what I want, make my own plans, chart my own course, and ask the true and living God, tell him, you go take a seat. And this is exactly what the Pharisees did in response to Jesus. They took up stones. And if they could have that day, they would have pelted to death the Son of the living God. And truly, they did bring him to his earthly demise, both only temporarily when they put him upon the cross and crucified him, denying who he was, denying his divinity, denying his anointing as Messiah and his call to save the world. And so our call to action here today is, first of all, to acknowledge the divinity of Jesus, his lordship, his greatness, his, his authority, his divinity, his eternal existence, and to, to proclaim who Jesus truly is. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is the Lord. That's what everything comes down to. You can remember what I said, what Jesus said. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You can talk in broad generalities on the news, on social media, in the corporate world about God and prayer. But once you bring in the name of Jesus Christ, people get nervous. People are offended. But everything comes down to who is Jesus and what have you done with him? Not just what you did with him in the past, but what do you do with him right now? Is he sanctified and set apart in your life as holy and righteous in the love of your life? Or is he something else? That is a question we ask for ourselves. And that is a question we ask of the world around us who needs to know who he is and be called to surrender to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, God incarnate, which is Jesus.